You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie and Marty Gibson joins me now, as always, for Media Matters. Another week, more things happening in the media. Long weekend. Yeah, how are you doing, Marie? I'm yeah, doing no. well. What you do for the long weekend? Well, I headed back to Gisborne for a 50th birthday on Saturday night. Happy birthday, Adrian. It was a good party and uh, nice to catch up. Nice to be in a big crowd of people where I knew most of them. Yeah, so, a good chunk yeah. of them. Yeah. It is it is always reminiscent when you head home. I'm probably going to have to head back in a few weeks as well. There have been a few things unfold in my family over the last week, which I'll fill you in later. Well, but, we're uh, at that yeah, age, aren't we? It are. was sad that the road toll was four uh, people killed over the weekend, and I certainly reflected on the causes of that as I was driving back and someone overtook me at the end of a straight where there was a car obviously coming towards us and I slammed on my brakes and they pulled in front of me not more than 20 metres ahead of me to avoid having a head-on collision. And we were probably about four hour, uh, 400 metres from a passing lane, which was just around the corner. Um, and I always think, you know, I always wonder what people do when they get back from a, ju- a journey when they're driving like that. Mm. They're probably... Go inside, sit down, watch some crap TV, and not realizing they're rolling the dice on their life with the prize being that five minutes of watching crap TV, if that. Mm. It is a funny old thing, you know. I mean, I remember you and I took several car journeys back in the day when I was traveling a lot. And, you know, I was often a, what was a, a Uber busky before Uber was a thing. And <laughs> uh, we, you know, we talked a lot on those journeys. And one of the things that I remember a lot, I mean, gosh, I used to do, I think one year I did something like 40,000 Ks mm. uh, in the car alone. And that's without the air travel at the job I used to have. It always amazed me the risks that people took on the road. Mm. It stunned me. I'm naturally a very, very cautious driver, so I always found that really quite stark. I tell you what, if if you want to think about risk, when we first moved here, I just got a job, any job, and ended up on a road-fixing crew for a civil engineering company. Found myself sometimes at 3 o'clock in the morning on a night shift driving a truck with nine tonnes or something of hot mix in the back, at, at uh, which is 180 degrees Celsius, reflecting that if I fell asleep and crashed into a bank, it would be joining me in the cab. So that was better than a cup of coffee for keeping my mind on the job. (laughs) But it's quite funny. The other thought I had was, you know, they've got those signs, drinking, don't drive. It occurred to me that that's all backwards. It should be driving, don't drink, because the problem is that once people start drinking, they stop making good decisions. And once you get to those two beers or three beers, it's easy to have another two. and uh... Fatigue. You know, they have done some things on fatigue, but I, having been someone that's driven long hours and long days, uh, fatigue for me was my always my enemy. Oh, yeah. 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 It's really worth uh, keeping in mind what's at stake. When I first started work out of uni, I got a job for the world's biggest chemical company, and they put me through a whole lot of driver training just on Pukeko racetrack and defensive drive. And it's, it's meant, well, I've never had a car crash. Mm. It's really, it made my driving a whole lot better. I remember you and I had a conversation going through the wire week of gorge on defensive driving. <laughs> and you actually pointed out how my cornering wasn't as optimal as it needed to be. And actually I took that on and I changed the way 
I drove after that, and it was even better. So there you go. God, that was oh. 25 years ago and some. Happy See, to have helped. I know. See, listeners, <laughs> we've known each other a very long time. I had a good look at the papers over the weekend. So I had a couple of things that happened. Is One is that because, see, we had an extra day off here in the Bay because it was anniversary weekend. So I had Friday as well. And I actually took a whole day off on Friday. Oh, good for you. Oh, I know. I don't do it very often. Uh, well, I say that, but Mr. Marie bought me the papers because he completely forgot that it was Friday and thought it was Saturday. And one of the things that I actually chopped out, and I have had it sitting in my little cubby here for about four or five days, was Josie Bacani, uh, How to Overhaul the Public Sector. And this was sort of a precursor. There's been lots in the paper, particularly over the weekend, now that Hipkins has conceded and they're waiting for the dust to settle, they've all got time to ruminate on what yeah. went wrong and what might happen. And she started uh, some of the rumination with a very good opinion piece around how to overhaul the public sector. And I just wanted to read a couple of passages from this, which sort of kicks off into the rest of it. She says, Wellington is out of step with the rest of the country. It is a green mayor and a green MP in the inner city, and while the rest of the country went the other way, the city has a dilapidated water system, brutal roads, and malfunctioning public transport. Yet the people who voted for all this are the same people telling the rest of New Zealand how things should be run. If an incoming government is to achieve better performance, it will need to devolve more away from Wellington to local communities and providers close to people and their service. I bet that if it was the Sallies, Housing for Humanity, or iwi authorities given cash for social housing, they could roll out more, better and faster than Wellington has. Finally, get rid of the gibberish. Chronic inability to be precise about the objective of government initiatives has real-world effects beyond its linguistic crimes. As George Orwell famously observed, jargon is usually deployed to hide either weak thinking or disguise the sinister exercise of power. Now, that was in um, The Post. I actually read that. I think someone sent, linked it. I posted a, it. Maybe it was you. Yeah, it was me. Right. I posted that was it because I just... a blinding flash of clarity from... Uh, Josie. Josie. Uh, mm. And you know what I thought when I was reading it was, you know, maybe it's time that uh, electorates that elect MPs should have policies from the party that they voted for more. So it would be great to see Wellington Central have a wealth tax the, the way the Greens envisaged them. I think they would turn around their voting pretty quick, but... Yeah, just that out of step. That's what you want. You're voting for a party that's essentially communist and you're running the country that's voting for the opposite. It, it mm. summed it up a lot, didn't it? Oh, totally summed it up. Totally mm. summed it up. And it was nice to see a commentator actually call it because then for the remainder of the papers, there was lots of um, hand-wringing about the potential of job losses. And I saw in, I think it was Q&A with John Campbell, and and they were all worried about Luxon's attempt to strip what's going to happen with all these public mm. sector jobs and how important they were and how they must stay. Uh, and so they were already sort of panicking. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, you know, jobs. I got up here, I wanted a job, and I just phoned a labour hire organisation and said, I don't care what I do. Because, you know, when you're a writer, everything's grist to your mill. So I never lose with that. And it was, you know, was one of the funnest jobs I've had in many ways. And it wouldn't hurt a lot of those people to do that. Mm. You know, because yeah. you, you, you know, I had this little uh, cockney guy who's my boss and it made everything sound like I was in a Guy Ritchie movie. He said, all right, Molly, we're going to split up the gang. 
You take the truck, go out and get some alt mechs. <laughs> it was like being in a, uh, a squadron going to, to war in some ways on the potholes. It's important, I think, to to get those connections. And you mentioned it last week, you know, about the potential of where all these public servants might go. And a lot of them, you see, I mean, journalism has dropped. I mean, half of journalists have disappeared out of media organisations with even more threats to come with both NZME and uh, MediaWorks now being yep. uh, in, the, in the papers with the financial audit being done and they're not essentially they're not solvent so there's going to be even more but where did the, all those journalists wash out to well they washed out into the into government space so there's yeah. going to be a lot of hacks looking for something to hack well you know i mean as i said they should uh, drive a truck for a bit and uh, meet some other people i mean i i got co-opted quite a few times as as a support person to sit in on um, disciplinary hearings which was you know, kind of a little bit of a conflict of interest and made me a bit unsettled, but, the, you know, my company said they were okay with me doing it. You, you know, you know that word hand-wringing, the, the hand-wringing about people losing their jobs is a big part of our difficulty in productivity. If you contrast New Zealand with Germany, in Germany, it's really easy to fire people. There's not the stigma to being fired that there is in, in New Zealand. If you've ever tried to fire someone... It's a nightmare, and it, it's the origin of that handbrake on the product on New Zealand's productivity that that you can hear when you talk to, say, a builder, and you say, "How are you getting on?" And they say, "Oh man, I'm just so snowed and flat out." And you say, "Well, why don't you hire someone?" And they get this visceral sort of like they've been punched in the gut, and they just say, "Oh God, no, I can't be bothered with that." Mm-hmm. And it, it's because if you get someone who starts making noises about taking some sort of case to the employment tribunal, they're going to give them 10 grand just because they figure, well, where there's smoke, there's fire, and you can afford it, and and so on. And so it stops people giving people a go. Mm, and it, it um, in the same way as the minimum wage stops good people being paid what they're worth because you're paying your least productive workers what they're not worth. So your best workers kind of start getting pissed off and slow down. And your worst workers have got no incentive to improve. It's all of these unintended consequences of labour laws. Yeah, and then, of course, the restructuring process is is so vastly more onerous than what it was back in the day. I know when I worked in media, uh, so the five years I was with that company, all restructures I went through. The only way you can fire people Mm. without getting a claim against you. Yeah. And so there's all of this paperwork that goes with that. And, oh, man, I mean, I've had periods where we've been kept up for six months by those things. And you're walking on eggshells egg and it's ghastly. And it is such a suck on productivity. Oh, it is. It's massive. And it's difficult because, yeah, as you said, it it doesn't promote productivity. It also doesn't promote growth in smaller businesses because they yep. just do not have the time and energy to sort of move into that. And having been there, done that, oh, I don't miss it. I used to look after the HR and I do not miss it at all. And it's even worse now. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know how they're going to improve that. Let's start with uh, the one paper that had the least amount in it, shall we? Which for me was the Herald on Sunday. It was uh, it was very slim pickings. It was it was the diet program. So I only literally plugged out 
uh, three opinion pieces and the Beehive Diaries. The rest of it was just not really worth the paper that it was on Saturday. Well, you also sent me a photo of Andrea Vance reassuring me that she'd reverted to full Darth Vader and angry face. I know. Thanks for keeping me up to date because I couldn't buy the uh, Herald on Sunday. It was sold out everywhere I went. But she went back to full Darth Vance. Which is her prerogative, you know. It's it's woman's body. It's her right to choose, Marie. Let's not forget that. If she wants a very severe fringe, that's up to her. But yeah, I wish they'd warn me before I have to open the paper and get the fright. It has been interesting. The theme we were talking about it before we got started. The theme. I def- there's two big themes, uh, and we'll dive into them. One a treaty, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the other one was in terms of the sort of. How where did where did Labour go wrong? And in one way or another, a lot of the commentators actually pointed to it without realizing they were pointing to it. And in my opinion, what has absolutely tripped Labour up is the fact that they have they went woke and they went woke with bells on under Dear Leader. Mm. She was the the high priestess. The patron the, saint. Yeah, the patron saint of woke. And for those that don't understand critical social justice, from a political perspective, they talk about identitarianism or identity politics, whereas it is about the person or the thing or the label and not about the policy. At the heart of it, it's all about power. Mm. So it always lends itself to politics. So, of course, we talk about the student Marxist politicians with their credit cards. Well, Ardern took it one step further because she took that identitarianism and those classic Marxist principles, which, let's face it, in one form or another, the Labour Party is founded on. Yeah. And she expanded it with that sort of postmodern veneer of anything goes. There is no absolute clarity. So whatever you want something to be, or you say something, it is, therefore it is. Yeah, that's where malinformation comes from. It's true, but it's bad. And I mean, I've said before, so many, if not all of the problems that we're facing as a nation now have their tap roots in lies, whether it's in uh, John Money's fraudulent pedophilic research with uh, the twins. And and of course, John Money is, is regarded as the intellectual core of what's the name of the group that go around telling kids that maybe they're trapped in the wrong body inside out yeah inside out it's all based on Foucault and his terribly pedophilic tendencies with 10 year old boys in graveyards in Algeria and that's never mentioned you know you're talking earlier about how everything's about power that assumption that all hierarchies are based on power uh, ignores the fact that generally They're not. They're based on competence. I reject the premise of her election, which was that the only reason that uh, Marx, a student politician with no life experience outside wrapping fish and chips or political brown-nosing had never been prime minister was sexism rather than the fact that she was going to make a sow's ear of it. Mm. And, you know, when you've got, you're placing no value on competence and you uh, place no value on the idea that there's uh, some sort of logos or ultimate truth or God, you know, and I'm probably not far further along from you and my religiosity. I'm not particularly religious, but Jordan Peterson said when he was asked if he was, if he believed in God, 
I live as if I do. And mm. that's kind of where I've arrived at. I think if people talk too much about God and what God wants, they're in danger of committing idolatry by um, worshipping their brain and the thoughts they've got. Yeah, that's maybe getting a bit abstract uh, for a discussion about the papers. In terms of Hero on Sunday, Chanel doesn't quite really realise how MMP works. So Chanel was rather concerned at how there was a vote splitting. As you know, I've discussed vote splitting before. But he figured out the vote splitting between Labour and Greens, and this is why there was carnage in Auckland, without actually realising that there's vote splitting on both sides, Pete. You know, so just as the vote on the left is split between the Greens and Labour is the same way that the vote is split between National Act and New Zealand First on the other side. You could hear his will to authoritarianism slipping off a a little bit there, couldn't you? The mask from that slipping off. He was just like, you know, we need a centrally organised coordination uh, to get well, part I think I, I, I don't expect either party to put their hand up to expect, accept responsibility. Well, of course not, because that's not how they work. Uh, but I hope that they've both learned a lesson from the result. Labour and Greens need to start cutting deals with each other to avoid competing in the same electorates, and they also need to be open and transparent about doing so. <laughs> oh, good luck with that, love. Mm. But then I think it actually got worse for Shane, to be fair. Oh, bless yeah. Shane. Shane DePoe. So he wasn't so worried about the vote splitting. He was just worried about Labour loyalists not actually coming out to vote at all. I think he was living in a parallel universe, actually, because he um, he said... Uh, and that those New Zealanders had voted for Jacinda Zardoon's vision. Yeah, and she'd delivered on her vision. Yeah, she delivered 77,000 kids out of poverty, 200,000 more homes built nationwide, over 300,000 people into work, and 20,000 lives saved um, during COVID. Shane, where are the receipts, darling? Because I haven't seen those receipts. Yeah. And if there are 20,000 lives saved, why is the Ministry of Health sitting on data that shows the differences in health outcomes between the vaxxed and the unvaxxed? Yeah, where's the 16% increase in excess deaths come from? Gosh, yeah. His sort of idea was the fact that they'd lost vision. They'd lost their positivity and their vision. The problem with Labour Party, it's running on visionless, dull managerialism. That is what National runs on too, except they do them as businessmen in blue suits. Mm. Yeah. Following one which I know potentially normally you wouldn't read, which was Jesse Gurunathan in Zeitgeist and Spy, because I think that's a section that you potentially only just glance over. <laughs> the chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. Anyway, well, I'm chuckling because I didn't read it even when you sent it. I see. I knew you wouldn't. I've read this stuff before. Yeah, like, I know. And you uh, look, to be fair, usually I wouldn't either. However, it was interesting because she's an influencer. An influencer. An Inverted commas, an influencer. The headline is Influencers Have a Moral Duty. And she's obviously been looking at what's going on in the Middle East and people's reactions to that, reactions to what's happened. She's saying, for me personally, it's been eye-opening for so many reasons. The spreading of misinformation and cognitive dissonance has been particularly hard to navigate, but she doesn't actually say what the misinformation or cognitive dissonance is. Yeah. We're very opaque at what side of the fence one is sitting on. While social media has revolutionised information sharing and consumption, it's undeniable and it's also facilitated the spread of misinformation and disinformation. Okay, all right, we know you're on the Kitty Kate's Kool-Aid. Algorithms can create eco-chambers, true. 
we users are primarily exposed to content that aligns with your existing beliefs. True. We also have seen how social media platforms can be exploited for manipulation and propaganda. And then she goes on to uh, Russia, Russia, Russia and uh, Trump bits and bobs and Pizzagate and all the rest of it. What she doesn't actually talk about with this is the fact that that in itself, in terms of the manipulation within the United States. What they don't talk about is the role of Cambridge Analytica, which is... Mm, the nudge fully, units. Yeah. That what these current governments have done now is they've taken the lessons learned by Donald Trump in 2016 and what he did, and they've gone and applied it themselves, right? A social media was a hotbed of misinformation, conspiracy theories, she's on a roll, surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic, false claims about the virus's origin, effectiveness in vaccines and government measures spread faster than the virus itself, hindering public health efforts and causing confusion. I find myself conflicted because although it can be a powerful and defiant act of allyship, it's also dangerous if a person sharing information is perhaps out of their depth. Yeah, maybe have a listen to Leighton Smith's podcast interview with Asim Malhotra. That's a person who's not out of his depth, and he's kind of uh, confirming a lot of the things that you're labelling as misinformation, yeah. my dear. That was uh, the assessment there, and there is certainly, um, in terms of the Sunday Herald, there is lots of information that is rolling around and lots of panicking about uh, jobs and who's going to keep jobs and who's not going to keep jobs. Um, before we jump over to the treaty, because I do want to cover that, and you and I both looked at that, the Saturday Herald, which was vastly better than the Sunday one. Okay, Bruce Cottrell, why pay more, get out and hustle, which speaks to what you just talked earlier before about mm. productivity. Yeah. It was very solution-focused. It's kind of like, okay, you know, I know we're just settling down this last of this election hoo-ha. Where are we going to from here? It was a really interesting breakdown of wages and the direct effect that both wages has in driving the economy and, more importantly, inflation up. So the Labour government will have you believe that their greatest success is that they have improved wages for workers, and they have. In 2017, yep. the minimum wage was 15.75 an hour. It is now 22.70 an hour. That's a, a jump of just shy of seven bucks, or 44 percent, in six years. Yeah. One thing I'd put in there is, say you hire someone who's 18 and has got no work experience. If you have to pay them 22.70 an hour rather than 15 bucks an hour, maybe they're living at home, right? Maybe their expenses aren't that great compared to someone who's got a family. You have to give them a boring, easily quantifiable job. You can't have them watch you do something more complex. You can't take the time to teach them so they can be worth twenty-two seventy an hour. And so, yeah, there's always those uh, unintended consequences. If not only you have to do that, but it's impossible to stop doing it if it turns out that they're no good. You've got all these, as I said, tradesmen limping along, rushed off their feet, but won't hire someone. And I've spoken to builders like that. I've spoken to people who work for building companies who've got all of these immigrant workers coming on. They find out that they're paid more than them and they're useless, but they have to be paid more because that's a condition of being able to get them in. That's what happens when you're 
have people deciding these things who have never employed someone and had to live or die by whether they can do the job. And, and so it's easy for them to think, well, you know, for James Shaw to think, oh, well, you know, if 25% of the most productive New Zealanders leave, we've got plenty more people. That That's the whole idea that you raised earlier. They see all hierarchies as uh, a measure of power rather than competency. Even in a, in a manual job, someone who is a really good worker, they can do three or four times more than someone who's not. And as I said, if you've got to pay them more or less the same because you you have to pay someone what they're not worth, so you can't afford to pay someone what, what they are worth, that has a chilling effect on productivity. Well, it does, and especially when, and this was something that he touched, driving up the minimum wage can be a good thing, but it needs to correspond with an increase in productivity. Otherwise, you end up paying more for the same results. If anything, our productivity per person has gone down, not up. When COVID came along, we lost a lot of our workforce as people here on the working holiday visas left the country. By some reports, as many as 200,000 workers. As a result, we had the COVID-initiated worker shortage. Workers are like any other economic factor. Scarcity leads to cost increases. With the COVID-enforced absence of workers, wages went up as employees fought to attract staff they needed to stay in business. Meantime, in parallel to all of this, the government went on a hiring spree before and after COVID, often paying above the market to attract the workers they needed. It's been a perfect storm, drive up the minimum wage, lose a large number of workers overseas and exacerbate the scarcity by increasing the number of government workers. The results, a massive wage bubble. And this is why they're all shitting themselves now in Wellington, because you've had all of these people with overinflated salaries and overinflated egos all of a sudden having to enter into a realistic job market. Yeah. They're not going to like that. His comment, it's like a bushfire, easy to start, almost impossible to stop. Uh, yeah, because those increases are locked in. And in order to get back to wages that are proportionate to ability, they're going to have to go up even more. And so, we're, yeah, we've got the potential to see continued inflation just on the back of that. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, nothing else alone. The best way to break the cycle is to grow the economy. Do that. We need to find new and innovative ways to do things, as well as doing more of what we already do. Unquestionably, our strongest suit is agriculture. There are two ways to grow that business. We need to find new customers who will buy what we already make, but we also need to develop new stuff that we can sell to our existing customers, growing our trading with both existing and new product lines more rapidly than we've done in the past. But it will be an important ingredient of our recovery over the next five years. Now, what he's, I think, saying in a veiled way is that all this horseshit that particularly the Greens bring to the party uh, within governments, especially around climate and not so much environment, but climate, especially mm. the things that you've been talking about in terms of net zero and agenda to 2030, all that crap's got to go because all that is doing is hampering and adding layers of compliance and expense on the sectors that we need to grow, on the sectors that are going to get us out of the economic poo in the first yeah. place. Into sectors, and I'll just keep saying this because it annoys the crap out of me, onto sectors that were exempt from 
the Paris Climate Accord because food production was. But poor old James Shaw had to go overseas and try to make New Zealand a leader in all of this. And so he couldn't do that because we already had really high hydroelectric power. So our power was already green. So he put agriculture on the block so we could make a really impressive sacrifice to the climate fairies that was going to make him feel good as he flapped his jowls talking about it. And this comes back to that ideology that I mentioned earlier. Because that is virtue signaling, classic virtue signaling 101. Whenever you're in that environment and you're steeped in this ideology, and, and you're, you're a narcissist, a, and you're a narcissist, you're always trying to out pious each other. You know, it's you, you, who is the most saintly for the cause? Yeah, and James, with your fraudulent BA. How long do you reckon James will last? Oh, they, they sort of use him like an invisibility cloak. He's there to not frighten the the tealy ladies in the leafy suburbs who want to be kind. But, you know, the other thing that I've, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, the $2 billion deal that Chippy victoriously unveiled with BlackRock, who's a major WEF uh, sponsor, just saying, the $2 billion is basically what it will cost New Zealand per year to have agriculture included when it didn't need to be in our Paris Accord commitments. We're going to borrow money to pay that off, and then we're going to borrow money off BlackRock to give us power, and they're going to jack the prices up and build stuff that's only designed to last as long as till they need to flick it to make their medium-term profits. So the fact that we haven't been able to have this as an open discussion, largely in the last six years, or however long it's been since the Public Interest Journalism Fund, because it's specifically precluded any dis- such discussion without wanting to um, jump the gun in Tracy Watkins article about uh, the treaty referendum. She talks about the trigger for uneasy race relations being the treaty settlements. Now we tore ourselves to bits over treaty settlements. Mm. And uh, so far total treaty settlements are only $2.24 billion. And I tend to go with the higher estimates from some government reports about what our Paris Accord commitments could cost us this decade, and that's about $70 billion. So the treaty settlements, the potential uh, cost of appeasing the climate fairies is over 30 times the total treaty settlements. If I were a Māori who was told that they could only afford to pay me cents on the dollar for often manifest injustices and, and theft... Uh, I'd be a bit peeved about that, and especially given that there's very little discussion about it, let alone sharing, and I think this should happen with all science-based things, they sh- there should be a uh, commitment by people in the public sector to say, well, what's the point of falsifiability? Mm. When is this theory that we're doing all this on falsified? When's it falsified that you know we're asserting that the vaccine's safe and effective? or that we're warming the planet through CO2 emissions, even though CO2 emissions normally follow temperature rises by about 800 years. So it's hard to argue that it's causative. Mm. Mm. God, I'm a bit ranty today. When the premise that you start from is false, the outcome is always going to be antithetical to what it is that you're trying to achieve. Malinformation. It's malinformation. It doesn't. It comes back to that Jacinda Ardern quote, when she was asked what she disliked most about uh, her term in Parliament, she said the parliamentary protests. 
And when she said, oh, there are just so many people there that that were there on the basis of misinformation that just felt wrong. <laughs> like, that's phelium for you. Mm, it is. For me, as I've said, I'd love to be wrong. And it doesn't make me feel better when there's all of this talk about misinformation, but never any specifics about, well, what is the misinformation? And why is it wrong? And what is correct? And what's the data that supports your theory that it's correct? Well, misinformation and disinformation is the new racist in a conversation. It's only there and designed to shut the conversation down. It's like a full stop or an exclamation mark, depending on which one you want to use. Misinformation, if you've been kind and full stop, and disinformation, it's like, shut up, we don't agree with you, and we believe that you were doing this deliberately. So stop it. Stop it. Mm. Yeah, do you want to get onto the treaty now? Yeah, and and it's sort of twofold because it does actually dive into the it does dive into the cultural stuff that I have. There we go. Get to the right page because it, it covers across so both Sunday Star Times and the Herald on Saturday. And the reason why I think there is a combination between the two, we have seen signalling all week from Te Māori and Marama Davidson. Oh, man, that mask has come off. Has it what? Um, The implication of violence, if ACT gets their treaty referendum across the line. Now, I don't believe a referendum is the right way to go, personally. I I would, uh, I'm right with you on that. Yeah. Yeah, because all you're going to do is create a whole Brexit voice Mm. um, and you're just going to divide the nation even further. So I have no qualms on a referendum, but I do believe a conversation needs to take place. Now, what was interesting about this, it was a twofold thing after our Elizabeth Rada conversation we had last week, is this, of course, Taikura Ferris and Hannah Maipi-Clark, these two new young MPs, and they're both products of the Kohangareo. Julius Malema. Yeah, full um, immersion system. And in the Sunday Star Times, there was uh, an article by uh, Sapir Mayron, Kohangareo Generation Celebrates a Child Born of Prophecy. This article was really fascinating because I saw this massive disconnect in the article. And the disconnect was between the ideology of some of the people that have been brought forward, i.e., as we've seen with Ferris, when that sort of mask comes off in terms of indoctrination, versus the fundamentals around a process in a system like the Oranga Rail system and trying to sort of correlate that they are a product of that system when actually it's like, well, are they? Are they a product of that system? Is it the colonisation that dare not speak its name, Marxism? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's little to argue about in terms of the Kohongareo system as described, you know, tying more with the family, (laughs) thinking about the person as an individual. Great. And, and, you know, equally with Tracy Watkins' article, and in the meantime, the new government will still have to find ways to address the terrible statistics of Maori deprivation and poverty and poor outcomes in just about every measure, including health and education. As I've said before, every terrible stat essentially comes from the poor education performance. If you took all the racially earmarked funding away, is it possible that Maori outcomes would get worse? Mm. I think they'd get better. 
Mm. This is the thing. The Papa method reaches deep into the home, right, says. It demands equally of the family, community and school to raise the child to their full potential. In this way, the school raises the family too, he said. That I do not um, disagree with at all. And I think it's what they're doing is, is they're raising these young people, they're raising these two new MPs up as being coming from the system. It's like, no, they came from that system and then they were indoctrinated somewhere along the line. Now, wrote a note in the margin. Is Maipi Clark going to be an influencer or is she going to be influenced? Because she is only 21 years old. So yeah. incredibly impressionable. And what were the forces behind her? They talked about Nanaya Mahuta's uh, invisibility in the electorate and that the fact that she cited that the reason she wasn't there uh, for the people in, in Waikaro is because of her responsibilities and whereas this young woman was everywhere, Te Pāti Māori were everywhere they campaigned hard on the ground they worked hard to win that seat but I do wonder whether or not they're going to hold her up like some sort of Māori Greta Thunberg and I hope beyond hope they're not going to she's going to turn into this sort of Māori woke darling. Yeah. Well, and she's going to come a cropper. I really yeah. do worry because she seems to be a very lovely young woman. And and I really do hope. I worry. I worry. Well, I mean, you think about yourself as 21. At 21. Good okay. Lord. You know, you're just in the middle of that messianic phase where you see everything is very simple and in black and white. And there's the irony that introduction of very young people like that into politics actually uh, reinforces the old guard because they do, as you say, mentor them. And during that developmental phase, rather than going away learning from the world, they just end up parroting what, you know. And we all know who's going to be mentoring her into Bhante Māori. Yeah. Tamahiri himself. I mean, I think in her, he sees this mighty Joan of Arc. I really, really do hope for this girl. I really do hope for this girl that she is not manipulated. Oh, she's going to be manipulated. Oh, I mean, just... you know, for, for me, yeah, Tamahiri and James Shaw's, oh, there might be violence, is disgusting. I mean, I'm someone who is disgusted by violence. It's the least imaginative solution. Sometimes it's necessary and you should be capable of volcanic violence if it's needed but to and that's a such a common uh, tactic on the left oh you know you know we may not be able to control i remember there was a petroblast meeting up the coast and one of the limp-handed little lefties said oh we might not be able to guarantee the safety of the people if they come and talk to us it's like and also it needs to be asked you know when you're talking about violence are you thinking about these armed gangs that successive governments have failed to address as your shock troops? Because it's not you, is it? You're feet, little, soft-handed, flabby, overfed no. folks. No. It's always for someone else to be G'd into doing the violence. Yeah, exactly. So onto the treaty, onto the premise that actually starts with a lie. Mm. Now, what I mean by that, to justify that, is a discussion that we had, and I'm going to reiterate again, if you haven't done it yet, people, you need to listen to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Go to the replays page, his interview with Professor Elizabeth Rata, which was last week, groundbreaking. It's interesting, actually, how they left her out of that article in terms of the Papa and Kohangareo system, because she was integral in that. Yeah. And she, not a whisper was mentioned. Well, you know, it's it's projection as well, isn't it? It's like, hey, if we give up 
this advance that we've made, we're going to be overrun. They're going to treat us like crap. No, I think most New Zealanders would love to see Māori get out of the terrible state they're in in terms of imprisonment rates, in terms of educational failure, in terms of poor health outcomes. But telling people that everything bad that happens to them is someone else's fault ain't going to cut it. Mm. And, you know, it was interesting, and I know we're jumping around a bit, in Audrey Young's sighing series of assertions. That's very very diplomatic of you. Yeah. In fact, in all of these articles about the treaty, Mm. not one of them deigned to mention that one of the conditions of receiving public interest journalism fund money was that you had to take the approach that the treaty intended for co-governance, that New Zealand was a hopelessly racist country that disadvantaged Māori at a systemic level. So none of them actually floated the idea that, hey, maybe if we just allow that discussion to take place, it'll take some of the pressure out of it. So, I mean, I, I agree there shouldn't be a referendum on the treaty in this current state because so many people, in the absence of public debate, have taken to talking between behind their hands. And the mm. reason that I do openly talk about this is I think it's important to do so. And I go on to uh, Māori News Facebook groups and discuss, you know, what I think with Māori, who are often, you know, pretty angry about it. But I'd rather do that than go into some echo chamber and get agreed with. Yeah. At, there's because there's also- so many straw man arguments, which and- are, you know, one of which is, Parker, I want to see us fail. They hate the idea that we're doing better. No! And there's also a conflation between tenaranga teratanga, which is Māori sovereignty, and taking up critical social justice ideas and ideology, and they're actually sort of trying to conflate the two together, and they are worlds apart. Well, the other conflation is that it appears to me from my examination of the issue, and I'm no expert, I haven't studied it at university level or anything. So it appears that the Tino Rangatiratanga aspect of the treaty referred to individuals. Yeah. Hey, and so, so the debate that's never sort of had is Maori leaders have taken it to mean Maori as a species, as a school of Kahawai. And, you know, you saw John Tamahiri, you know, said this before, saying, you know, we're going to govern these people, we're going to manage them, as if the treaty was between Māori as a race rather than Māori individuals who, Mm. as I've said, you know, the tutua, the commoners previously didn't have any rights of ownership. Suddenly Mm. they could have their own land, which is one of the most powerful aspects of capitalism, isn't it? The right to own something. And this is where the critical social justice comes in because, as you said, it treats them as a school of kawai, but Māori have never been that. They have always been sovereign individuals who come to collect it collectively together in their own family and hapu groups. And the whole concept of iwi is a Western concept. It's yeah. not a Māori. Iwi doesn't exist in Māori. Yeah, well, I mean, I had uh, a story scotched um, that I wrote during uh, Chris Finlayson's term as treaty negotiator, where it was a sub-tribe, uh, more than a hapu, was objecting because Ngāti Perot had subsumed their claim, and their claim was essentially against the government and Ngāti Perot. So the people who perpetuated the injustice uh, then got to claim compensation for it. 
And so, yeah, it was very complex, complex situation. And, you know, the fact that the musket wars had to be ignored as they've been subsequently ignored in the new curriculum, despite killing more New Zealanders than World War One and Two combined. Yeah, the, the drive to have a simple solution is fits with a political agenda, but seldom with the agendas of uh, actual natural justice. One of the things in this Audrey Young piece, so what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out what is going to happen because all three parties, New Zealand First National and ACT, agree that something needs to happen in this space. How that takes place, you don't know. ACT has put a hard line in the sand claiming that they it was a bottom line for them, a referendum on the treaty. He's David's walked that back a little bit uh, mm. over the last sort of few weeks, but those are the sorts of hard lines that we're talking about here. If you listen to the Elizabeth Rata interview, this all started around these principles, right, of the treaty, which linguistic sleight of hand from G- Geoffrey Palmer in order to get some uh, state-owned enterprise legislation across the line <laughs> by placing a phrase into the legislation with absolutely no foundation on it and said, oh, don't worry about it, this will keep everybody happy. But it was completely undefined. So what has then happened since that time is they've now left it up to a series of activists and activist judges and lobbyists within that space to create this definition of what these articles are. And Winston Peters is one of the few was around at the time and remembers when all this happens. Mm. Winston Peters, New Zealand First Party, signed a confidence and supply agreement with Labour in late 2005. One of its conditions was to get Labour's limited support for the Members' Bill deleting references to the principles of the treaty from all legislation. Unfortunately, Parliament appears to have purged from its database all debate and submissions on that bill in 2006 in the name of Doug Wollerton, its website says ominously in red, terminated, not available, records from a previous database. It had has deleted debate on a similar bill a few months earlier in the name of ACT leader Rodney Hyde. It has, however, retained the record of a debate on an even earlier bill in Peter's name shortly before the 2005 election to delete references to the principles of the treaty from law. That bill was defeated by 63 to 51 National Act and United Future supporters supported Peter's bill, and it was opposed by Labour, Greens, the Progressives, and Te Pāti Māori. Yeah. So this horseshit has been going on for a long time. There is that uh, technique you see in other parts of the world where any, if you encounter any opposition, you just go crazy and threaten civil disobedience and disturbance and violence. It blocks the debate. As you know, I zoom out on this. I was fascinated to see a um, an episode of Mick Huckabee's podcast, a former governor of Arkansas and presidential candidate. I always really liked him. And he was talking about New Zealand and he's talking about Australia. And he talked about the defeat of the voice as being a defeat of these corporate interests that were governed by the WEF or or represented by them. And the voice was really about corporatizing ownership of 80% of Australia. Yes, because it's held as as Aboriginal land, yeah. Yeah. As I always say, you know, women thought the Rockefellers and the CIA were doing them a big favor sponsoring feminism. And now these same psychos are... uh, really concerned about Indigenous rights, but they never quite get around to being outraged about the terrible uh, performance of the education system. No. There's always that desire just to have them as victims without 
actually auditing, say in Australia, the $60 billion a year they get mm. for effectiveness. Luxon's got an interesting conundrum on his hands, right? So he's got now this collection of Māori activists in the form of Te Pāti Māori and Marama Davidson too on the other side with the Greens. One of the things that they all share as ideologues is they're very, very vocal. And they will yap, 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 yell, 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 yap, 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 to get what they want. And Luxon is going to have to, as I said, grow his punami balls in order to put his hand up and say stop. It will be interesting to see whether or not he brings Peters in alone solely for the only purpose to actually use him, Shane Jones and Casey Costello as a way to quell this noise that will get created by them. Because, of course, the easy thing to do with all these ideologues is just to pretend they don't exist or go along with it just to shut them up, which is the wrong thing to do. The wrong Pākehā to be talking about this with Māori too. You know, mm. I mean, Luxon isn't a Māori's Pākehā, neither is David Seymour, although, you know, he does have some Māori whakapapa. Um, Shane Jones certainly is a really good one in this space, yeah, I believe. should do a working group with Alan Duff in charge of it. And, of but, course, you know, as that Audrey Young article cites, Peters has been in tackling this, and I think he brought this up too in the interview we did with Peter Williams. He's been tackling this at a parliamentary level for the thick end of nearly 20 years. Yeah. You know, the thing that's always lost in this, which always makes me sad, because I do love Māori. I love hanging out with them. And once you've ex experienced uh, maraki tanga, you know, uh, on a marae and, and just in homes, and, and once you've sat around with one of your dead friends, with everyone mourning them in the sitting room, there's something that they bring to white folks that led, I think, in an early English visitor to New Zealand said, Māori are making a better Englishman. And in the same way, I think I've seen Māori in Pākehā settings really impressed by how we can all be together without violence or conflict. I think the aim ultimately should be to become more than the sum of our parts. As I said, you know, if, if Māori uh, uh, fail in the education system, if you looked at that at a neighbourhood level and considered that somewhat akin to a hapu, you could organise groups of families to intermingle with some of the families who are struggling in terms of food, budgeting, reading to kids, just saying, well, look, if, if we don't help you get out of this, it's going to bite us. So let's... It's pulled together a bit. But as I said, governments grow in between us like cancer and uh, set us against each other. That's more important than having any referendum on the treaty. Mm. And it is the failures of those systems in order to prevent adverse outcomes. I mean, that's what we want. I mean, you've spoken to it in education. And the last article I'll bring up, because we both read it, in the same edition, actually, is that treaty article... Teen's prison story shows system is wrong. I gather yeah. that's what we're reading, right? Yeah, that is the oh, one that sure. we're reading. And and if you've been listening to the entire show, you'll know that I've just spoken to Di Landy. We this. love your Di Landy. I do love Di. She <laughs> is just an absolute treasure. 
And I hadn't read this, unfortunately, when I'd spoken to Di, and I read this after talking to her. So it's by Tara Shasky, uh, Saturday uh, Weekend Herald, Teen Prison Story Show System is Wrong. Hopefully it is digital and online. I've got it in hard copy here. It just highlights everything that Di has just spoken about here on the show Mm. in terms of the failures of not only the system, follows this uh, young man, Blake Hollands Apiata, who has been jailed twice in the past 15 months, first for breaking the jaw of a police officer and then for stabbing a boy. So we're not saying that this wee lad needs needs to have some time, right? Uh, Some time away. But what it does show is how once he got into the system, how the system has done absolutely nothing for him. Nothing to turn this young man around. Holland's Apiata began somewhat on the back foot. He was monitored for methadone withdrawal as a baby, and it's still unknown of the, of the impact, if any, it had on his development. Well, I think we can join the dots there. Court documents state his first three years of life were dysfunctional, marred by parental drug and alcohol abuse. He had minimal knowledge of all connection with Te Ao Māori and had little engagement in education, resulting him in leaving school at year 10. The teen's recidivist and absent father was in and out of prison for much of his childhood, with several of his jail terms being for violence and earlier this year in the situation described by Hannam as a peculiar and disturbing, the father and son shared side-by-side cells in the same prison Mm. this kid was screwed six ways to sunday and often kids like this aren't recorded as having fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or or, you know they're they're just there are a lot of kids who are born just slightly sawn off because their mum's hammering and i'm not saying this was the case with him i don't know though that dooming of kids even in utero is so sad One of the key elements they had with this is in terms of prisoner rehabilitation programs. They can have an effect. Celia Lashley, who, for me, her book was just pivotal. I think yeah, is it Boys Don't Cry? I think I read Boys Don't Cry and He'll Be Okay. And she talks about this intensively. Um, if you have a chance to see the documentary film Celia, made just before she died, I mean, she we lost her far too soon. And she showed her the programs that he, she was running mm. to help teens like this young man break the cycle ostensibly. I know people that have worked within the system in rehab, running rehab, and they are dedicated, passionate. They really do want to make a difference. And they've got people, they there are prisoners, prisoners there motivated to make that change. 2016, in 2016, 8,372 prisoners were in rehab programs. This is shocking, isn't it? 2022, only 2,086. What the actual F? Yeah. And I think often uh, perfection's the enemy of completion with this stuff. They're asking, you know, they're saying, well, we've got to get, we've got a shortage of psychologists. You don't necessarily need psychologists to get someone on to. And that's exactly what Di said. Yeah. In fact, if you've got the choice between waiting a year to talk to a psychologist and right away being taken with to, to be with maybe someone who's trustworthy, who's gone through the same thing right away, it's the latter every time. I, I haven't uh, had anything to drink for almost three years. I was never a problematic person in terms of 
you know, I didn't get violent or anything, but I, I drank too much and it, it slowed me down. The things I learned in that journey I've shared with other people and, and other people I've talked to have also stopped boozing. Before I did stop, I wrote a list of pros and cons about drinking. And about six months into it, I realized that all the pros were an illusion. Mm. And the cons were were far worse in some ways than I'd thought. And there were a few cons that I hadn't even been aware of. So there are plenty of things you can do with someone who's in that if you do it in a timely way. I think there should be a team going into every uh, police holding cell the morning after and talking to someone who's at that point where they're probably most likely if you go in and say, hey, do you want to come and live in a camp where you can get some counselling and uh, just have a job cleaning up forestry slash on the East Coast for six months. We'll take care of everything, yes or no, mm. that, yeah. that sort of thing. Part of the problem too, like as Di was saying, is that a lot of these offenders go in, they get held on remand, right? They're not out. They get held on remand. They get nothing, no services, no nothing whilst you're in mm. remand. They'll finally go up. They will get um, have their day in court. They will have be sentenced. And sometimes the sentencing is for time served because you've already been in there on remand, so you've served your time. So therefore you get released and you've received no support, nothing, no counselling, no rehabilitation, no nothing. You're just flung back out into an environment that created this cycle of offending in the first place. Mm. So it is really concerning. It's it's like this dirty little secret that no one wants to talk about. Before the election, National Correction spokesperson Mark Mitchells said corrections was under immense staffing pressure and struggling to cope, and we have seen that because they've been running a recruitment drive. He believed the department had suffered a total failure of leadership, and as a result, both prisoners and the public were failed. It's very... It's all very well to set a target to reduce a prison population, but we've seen the instances of people leaving prison without proper and adequate rehabilitation, and that has fatal consequences. I see huge parallels in the correction system to the health system. Mm. Those parallels are top-heavy, poor management, poor guidance and leadership from the very top, because let's face it, it's Calvin. (laughs) I know that the mandates absolutely ripped a hole in what was already a tissue-thin and fragile service within corrections because they had, they lost a lot of officers. Mm. Corrections was another one of those departments. And COVID, you know, um, Di was just saying in an interview, you know, they've still got Rumataka, they're still not in-person visits, citing Let, COVID regulations. stop saying COVID, Marie. COVID was a possum crossing the road. Yeah. The COVID response was driving off a cliff to avoid hitting it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just, yeah. anywho. Kelvin also blocked man up because it, with his concern being that, well, they'll just join the Tamaki's church. Who cares? Good. As I, ju- as I just said to Di, I said they they blocked it because they were terrified that these men would stop worshipping state and start actually worshipping yeah. you know, the Lord. Yeah, it comes back to that horrible dawning understanding I've had that governments love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more government. So as a taxpayer, you look at this and go, well, these guys have emptied the prisons significantly, and what few prisoners are there, they've given less rehabilitation to. That makes no sense. No. 
wouldn't that be an amazing thing that once they get this thing ironed out that someone actually picked up the phone and said to Brian, look, even if they just say, what is it that you're doing at Man Up that we can emulate? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, that would be how uh, Luxon would get around. He'd be able to get around that pressure to have a um, a referendum or anything like that. And I think even, even Seymour's backing away from it a bit. Just say, hey, look, what we'll do first is we'll just really charge at the the basic problems. Let's really get big on rehabilitation. Let's really up the achievement through the education system. Uh, let's uh, ensure that you know that we're really looking at other possibilities for the health system failing Maori in addition to that it's hopelessly racist. Maybe instead of that. Mm. But yeah, no, that story was really, really shocking. And the lack of coverage of that statistic really was news to me. And it's yeah, a public interest journalism true. initiative as well, which, uh, mm. you know, credit where credit's due, that in, in the list of all the public interest journalism I've seen, this is uh, certainly one of the better ones. It's probably, for me, it was the most powerful piece in the in, in the papers that I read for, across Friday, Saturday, Sunday, for sure. Yeah. You know, as I've said, I, I've had a bit to do with gangsters. And having had kids, I think one of the effects of having kids is you see the child and everyone more. And I see these these guys swaggering around, and I I just I see kids. I mean, they sort of all have that slight fourteen year old vibe about them. Um, but if you talk to them, you hear the hurt of being placed in state care, the hurt of having a difficult situation at home. And then doing something stupid and just being branded for the rest of their lives, you know. And, and I think something my old man used to say was, "It's it's not an excuse; it's an explanation." Mm. Yeah. And I think that's important too. You can have compassion without being weak about it, and that's the best way to go. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's still a little bit of time left until they we know how things settle out. I did have a giggle at Derek Chen's uh, attempt at crystal ball gazing. I think it was quite cute. Uh, Not verbose. Oh, bless his little heart. There are so many different alliterations that this thing could roll out. I do feel that I wouldn't surprise me that there are already back channel talks going on with Winston. I think Christopher Luxon knows that regardless of how things shake out, he's better off to have Winston in the tent than out of the tent. And there's there's experience there. Let's face it, because Luxon doesn't have it. And, you know, why not get get the 42-year veteran on side? Well, that's what Stephen Joyce essentially said. He said, you know, basically uh, uh, there is also an opportunity in the negotiations for Christopher Luxon to fully step out of the shadow of his predecessor and mentor. For all John Key's strengths, we weren't able to do a deal with Peters on his watch. Forming a durable three-way coalition would be a visible sign that this administration is different in a meaningful way from its antecedents. And that is as it should be. And, and yeah, I, I agree with that. And I'd like to think anyway. New Zealand first have a different attitude in, in terms of, and I think they've telegraphed this well throughout the campaign. You know, we can play politics or, or we can address some of the urgent problems that New Zealand's facing. Mm, indeed. Indeed. I'm still reasonably optimistic. Hopefully things shake out in this way. Hopefully... Yeah, I I just hope we can approach a more more than the sum of our parts thing. Yeah, you know, I mm. think that's that's the way New Zealand 
should go, along with a, a renewed commitment to truth and just facing facts. Mm. If we can do that, I think I think we could unleash some power that would get us out of the muck. But it is a case, you know, as I've said before, it's like whitewater kayaking. If you're trying to block truth, if you're trying to cut energy out of an economy, it's like backpedaling in the face of danger rather than saying, okay, well, we're going to use the energy that we've got more wisely, maybe power up even a little bit. We're going to speak the truth, but we're going to aim at our problems and and with some energy and uh, and unity. There you go. Very wise words. If you've got any feedback for Marty and I here on Media Matters, 2057 is the text number. Inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Thank you again. Thanks for your good work, uh, Marie, and look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah, we'll do it all again next week on Reality Check Radio. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah, yeah. Reality Check Radio.